All right, let's go ahead and get started this morning as kind of the final chapter of our little parenting review. Uh, we wanted to answer this last question regarding children who die in infancy. Uh, this conversation is one that often comes up even in our culture, which is so uh, pro-abortion. And in those discussions, there will be this question of... Uh, what about all these millions of children who have been aborted before they've even entered life uh, outside the womb? Um, obviously, that question can be roundtabled and discussed you know, in a theoretical and theological sense. The reality is the question becomes profoundly personal uh, for couples that have miscarried and lost children, stillborn children, young children who even die after uh, living a few years, perhaps. Lumped in with this question is the state of the mentally handicapped. Uh, my brother's 57 uh, years old and yet still kind of functions like a very old infant or young toddler. So uh, the question is valid for... Uh, those who have disabled children as well as those who have lost children. Uh, and, and so pastoral care uh, will call on me to be able to give some kind of answer to the question. But really, it's not just a pastoral issue. Uh, you as a friend, as a family member, uh, will be called on to comfort those who are sorrowing the loss of a child. Uh, you've known people uh, who have miscarried, uh, and maybe you're on the inner circle where that news may not even get out to many others, yet you know of it, and suddenly you might be the height of pastoral care for that person. I am sure there are times that this has happened where uh, I, as even uh, one of the pastors of the church, haven't been aware, uh, and yet God's people need to be equipped to comfort those in their season of loss, and inevitably to answer the question they will ask, where's my child? Has my child gone to heaven or not? We must be really careful to avoid the sentimentalism that can often guide our first urge to answer um, it can, it can come out in very poor theology at times in our attempts to provide comfort. But we have to realize that the depth of the heartache and the sorrow demands a depth of careful study of the word to answer the question. You can't, you can't look at somebody in this depth of sorrow having lost a child or asking hard questions and give a shallow sentimental answer. No, it, the grief and the weight of it just, just kind of calls out for very intentional, very well thought out study of the word. Truth has to answer that sorrow. We have to stand on our statement of theology that the word of God is sufficient for every question in life. So we cannot afford uh, to be shallow or sentimental uh, or worse, even inaccurate uh, in our answers to these challenging questions. So I want us to wrestle probably this week and next with this question, uh, do children who die in infancy go to heaven or do the mentally handicapped go to heaven? So there's the question. And our, our tendency is probably to jump to yes or no and then to try to defend the position. Um, I, I would rather start in a different way, and I would urge you in these next couple of weeks uh, to think through how are you going to answer the question when your good friend calls and says, we just lost a child. Or, you know, at 20 weeks there was a miscarriage here in the congregation and, and you find out about it. What would be your answer if that person said to you, what happens to my child? Over the 
I guess years, though actually I've, I've never personally been asked this, like on the spot, in the moment of loss, or in a conversation about their loss, I've never actually been asked this question. But over the years, having thought through it somewhat, and then in the last few weeks, having known this question was on the table, uh, I've given it some thought and realized with uh, not a lot of resources really out there until recently, and I'll share a couple of them next week, um, I think the best place to start that would, that would ensure that we're, we're heading down the right path is to avoid the yes or a no. Because what I'm going to try to establish is that is almost irrelevant when compared to the reality of the purpose of God and the glory of God. So if that sounds a little harsh, then then just wait and think through it. But instead of getting to yes or no, which I would say is secondary, let's start with what is ultimate or primary. And though it may not sound like the answer to the question specifically, it would ensure that if the person that you're speaking to hears nothing else, they hear something that is absolutely true and essential. And so if I were asked this question, does, did my child go to heaven? Uh, the child perhaps never even made it into the world, never breathed air. Um, is my child in heaven? My, my initial urge to respond would be Psalm 1830. As for God, his way is perfect. Or in some translations say, this God, the God that has unfolded in Psalm 18 so far, and you could read it, this God, his way is perfect. Or some translations, his way is blameless. I think the most important truth for someone who's trying to answer this question uh, what happens to my child? Does a child who dies in infancy go to heaven? Does, does a mentally handicapped brother go to heaven? The answer is, as for God, his way is perfect. We have to start there. Oh, our hearts may cry out for, I, I want the specifics. I want to know how that perfect God does this. But you'll quickly realize there are all kinds of situations in life where you don't get that answer. The, the The purposes of God are not always self-evident. They're just really clear to us that we don't have that luxury. Much of the Christian life is lived by faith in this God that we believe ordains all things. And so we start here, as for God, his way is perfect. And the verse goes on to say, the word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So as for God, his way is perfect. His word proves true. He is a shield. It seems like after telling us God and his way is perfect, there's two arguments that unfold. And both these arguments then become the source of a further conversation with this person in sorrow, this person in question, this person in need. We begin with hope in God's words. The word of the Lord proves true. As for this God of ours, Psalm 18, the God who it begins as, O Lord, my strength, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Goes on to unfold how God protects and delivers and and provides and saves As for this God, his way is perfect and his word is true. So your answer to the one in sorrow, the one in question, is going to be the word. And and I think what I want to show you in the word is that the hope of babies going to heaven is consistent with what God has said. And And I emphasize consistent with because I have... Uh, no doctrine of the age of accountability or responsibility to give to you. I have no definitive word that spells out exactly how this works. But I, I will say and will attempt to show you from the Bible that 
the hope of babies going to heaven is consistent with what we see in the scriptures. Um, but I think we need to be careful and, and, and just let that be sufficient as the answer. Um, oftentimes our dogma, our, our strength of encouragement or comfort comes in our sentimentality and not in the actual words that God has given to us. But as for this God whose way is perfect, his word is true. And so we, we go to his word and we find what's there that addresses this question in our minds. Do the mentally handicapped, do those who, children who die in infancy go to heaven? And the Bible doesn't say children who die before this age go to heaven or uh, those without the mental capacity go to heaven. But it does tell us other things. And those things that we glean are consistent with this urge, this deep desire to know that they are in heaven. Now, sometimes that desire can be a flawed emotion, that it, it, a selfish, that I just want this. Others might argue it's a reflection of our, the image of God and that deep sense of mercy or justice that, that's kind of calling out for that this must be the right answer. But we can't go to the scripture and, and, and just clearly, dogmatically lay out, of course they go to heaven. I think we're best to say God's ways are perfect. Look, look at the goodness of God in Psalm 18 and know that his word is true. And his word says this and it says this and it says this. And we can take that and say that seems to be consistent with the desire I have for this to be a yes answer. So we're going to examine hope in God's words. Uh, babies going to heaven seems to be consistent with what God has said. But then we're going to really find the strength of the argument in hope in God himself. Um, he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Our hope of babies going to heaven must be secondary to our hope in God. And it's really not as harsh as it sounds because if we have no confidence that God is just or faithful or good or perfect, what hope do you have that you're even going to heaven, uh, let alone a child or a loved one? So the reality is when we really think big thoughts about God and his purpose, we realize I, I, I have to hope in God first and foremost because from that hope comes any other hope that I would have. And so our hope of babies going to heaven may indeed be our hope, but it will be because we hope in God. So I want to consider both of these answers, our hope in God's words and our hope in God himself. So first, our hope in God's words. Again, the Bible does not explicitly answer our question, do babies who die in infancy go to heaven? Some might write or talk dogmatically about some of the verses we'll look at and say, well, clearly this means they go to heaven. Well, I, I find it, for me, uh, more appropriate to say what we see there is very intriguing and it's consistent with our desire, our hope that babies go to heaven. Um, I, I, I want to shy away from proving the yes answer from scripture because I, I don't want us to need the yes answer as badly as our hearts may think we want it. We need to want what God wants from us and sometimes his greatest desire for us is not to have the things that we love around us. His greatest desire is for us to love him above all else. Uh, we'll see that even some in our morning study in our worship service. So the Bible doesn't tackle the question head on, though we might prefer that. Um, so what has God's word said regarding this question? Well, let's remember what we know clearly about humanity, about sin, about redemption. So what is clear in the scripture? What is clear and in answering our question, do infants that die go to heaven? 
in answering that question, we can't trample on what we know clearly from the scripture. We know that every human being is born in sin. Uh, Psalm 51, uh, the psalmist writes, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. So even when we say born, we're not even simply talking about born into the world, you know, nine months after being carried in the womb. We're talking about Psalm 139, when God knit us together. So conception seems to be the simplest way to think of the beginning of human life, the knitting together in God's providence. Um, The psalmist is saying from that point on, when I was this human being in its earliest shape there, um, there was a sin nature that was inherited from Adam. Every human being is born in sin. When we read Ephesians chapter 2, we realize like every other human being, we were born dead in sin. Oh, our body was alive. We were born. And there was life there in the sense of a, a new physical life. But the soul, the nature of that human being was corrupted by sin so much so that it, it says we're dead in that sin. We're children of disobedience from the very beginning. We know that. So to jump quickly to a yes, well, of course, infants go to to heaven. We have some reckoning because that infant was born with a sin nature. So we can't trample on that clear understanding of the scriptures. We know also then that God will judge sinners. This unfolded to Adam in the garden. He was entrusted to communicate that to Eve that if you violate God's law, the consequence is death. Romans 3 makes that clear. The wages of sin is death. Romans 5, death passed on all men for all sinned in their representative Adam in the garden. So God judges sin. He cannot allow sin into his presence. they, They do not coexist. God is holy. So every human being is born in sin and God will judge sinners. So again, in answering our question, do infants go to heaven? They don't just get some kind of pass because God's not holy if he said, in my holiness I judge sin except in those cases. There there aren't exceptions made. So in, in our answering, we're not saying there's a parenthetical somewhere that just isn't in the Bible that God's just going to sweep that under the rug. Their sin nature doesn't matter. It does. And God will judge all sin. Number three, we know clearly that God has mercifully provided a way of salvation. And it's through faith in this atoning work of Christ. So the shed blood, the idea of covering is all through the Old Testament. It's in It's in baby Moses floating in the bulrushes when we're told they made a basket and covered it in pitch. It's it's the ark that Noah builds and covers it with tar and pitch, atones it uh, to keep those safe within. It's in the slaying of the animals in the Garden of Eden when God makes a covering for Adam and Eve. It's the Passover in Exodus when the spotless lamb is is killed so that the firstborn son isn't killed. It, it, It just goes all through. The, the, the millions of animals that died in the Old Testament era as sacrifices were pointing to the reality that God would provide a way to atone for sin and to redeem his people. So if infants are saved, it, it is not because of their own merit, their own righteousness, or because of their innocence. Heaven will not be populated by all those who knew they were sinners, repented and believed, and then another crowd that were just kind of excused as innocent or too young to understand. Uh, No, heaven will be populated only by people who are resting in the work of Christ for their salvation. That's what God has provided. And so forth, salvation comes to those who rest in Jesus. And so the New Testament is clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, Faith being that underlying 
explanation for how does a sinner receive the provision of God's salvation. It's by faith. So these things are clear, and, and in any other context, we see them, we think, of course, check, we got it, all, all men are sinners. And of course, God judges sin. And of course, there's only one way to be saved. Nobody just gets there because they're good enough or because they're innocent. It, it's always through Christ. And the key is faith, for by grace we are saved through faith. So these things are clear. And it's almost like we need to, to have them written on the chalkboard so that as we work through an answer about the infants that have been lost, even in our congregation, or, or the mentally handicapped, we have to keep realizing, wait a minute, the, the thought I was just thinking would violate this point or this point. And that can't be. So I have to subordinate any of my thinking, any of my heart, any of my emotions to what is clear in Scripture. Otherwise, because of sentimentality, and understandably in some sense, I, I understand the weight of this, but because of sentimentality, we actually diminish the work of Christ. We would, we would be saying, well, that's great, Christ is sufficient to save sinners, but in this case, look at this precious child, and, and, I, and I just think they're in heaven, even, even though I know that's true, but... And it's like, no, wait a minute, either, either Christ is all or he's not. So we can't say, hallelujah for the cross, that makes the difference, but not for these, because these just go and kind of bypass that. No, we cannot trample on what is clear uh, in the scriptures regarding how any human being, a sinner, arrives at the presence of, of the Lord forevermore, Psalm 16. When we look in the scripture now, there are a couple of, of ideas, and, that, and that's all I can call them right now. Maybe someday I'll keep thinking this through and write it up a little better. But I want to start with what I just have as a heading, those who lack capacity for understanding. I want to show you a couple of scriptures that, that just at least make us stop and think, wait a minute, the Bible, the Bible is putting up a little bit of like, a, uh, like those bumps in the road to just make us stop and think, why did it highlight those who lacked capacity for understanding? And while some of these verses may not feel dogmatic and like, oh, that's a clear yes to our big question, it may at least help you see why we use language like, there are things in the scriptures that are consistent with our hope that babies go to heaven. Numbers chapter 14. Uh, look back there. It's the, the story of the first uh, generation coming out of Exodus or out of Egypt in the Exodus. They're probably a year and a half of traveling and now they're on the brink of entering the promised land. It shouldn't have taken 40 years. Uh, they've learned a lot. God's been patient, but good. And now they're at this place called Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea. They're sending spies into the land because it's time now to really come up with a plan on how we're going to go in and conquer the land. Well, you remember 10 of the spies give the bad report. Uh, two of the spies, Joshua and Aaron, or, uh, Joshua and Caleb give the good report. It doesn't work. The people believe the negative report, fly into it like a, a, a panic of unbelief and refuse to take the Lord at his word. And the Lord is furious. He, he's ready to just destroy them all. Moses pleads and intercedes for them. Uh, but the Lord is going to pass judgment on the people. And he, and he does. So Numbers 14 Verse 28, say to them, the Lord says, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. 
But as for you, your dead body shall fall in the wilderness. When Moses recounts this in Deuteronomy chapter 1, he adds another interesting phrase, Deuteronomy 1 and verse 39. He says, as for your little ones who you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there and to them I will give it and they will possess it. In this account, it, it lacks the dogma to answer our primary question because obviously if you're 20 years or younger, you were allowed to, to live and wander in the wilderness and then eventually enter the land. And clearly, somebody 20 years old has some understanding um, that we just wouldn't have any question about the average 20-year-old having made a choice of uh, belief or unbelief. Uh, but the idea was theirs was not the responsibility or perhaps the capacity to fully weigh in on this decision and make the choice. Therefore, they were set aside and God dealt specifically with the others. But in that setting aside, and, and, and even as Moses adds in Deuteronomy chapter 1, he's, he's now speaking to that generation that has grown up wandering in the wilderness and they are going to go into the land. He says to them, and then he addresses their little ones and gives us this unique phrase that they, they don't have the knowledge of good and evil. And so they are going to enter the land. And it just reminds us that there is at least an awareness in the scriptures of those who didn't actively participate in the rebellion. Um, and that's kind of as far as we go. We just know it's there that the younger generation wasn't asked to bear the responsibility of that moral choice. Therefore, they didn't feel the weight of the moral judgment. Um, what does it prove? It's hard to say. We just know it's there. It's just there. And now we've heard in Deuteronomy 1 that there are little ones who have no knowledge of good and evil. And it's just there. Jeremiah is going to add to this language, he, he even uses the word innocence, and at least in our English translations, in describing the sin of the people of Israel in sacrificing their children to the fires of the Canaanite gods. And he says, the blood of the innocence is on you. Uh, it's just not hard to take that pagan practice and apply it to our pagan practice of abortion. Uh, and the blood is on the hands of those who participate in that, um, and they're called, in Scripture, innocent. Now, I'm going to argue in some of our other points that there's no such thing before God as true innocence because of that doctrine of original sin. We are all tainted by Adam's sin. But the word isn't used there to, to define a separate category of people. It's simply saying these are the ones who didn't contribute to the sin of Israel. Uh, they had done nothing to deserve that kind of execution, and yet their blood is on your hands. You're guilty of this crime. They're innocent. But turn over with me to Romans chapter 1 for a New Testament uh, example of, of not dogma, but just an awareness that our Maybe finite minds are just going to have to eventually boil this all down to a matter of faith. Romans chapter 1, strong argument here uh, for original sin uh, so that ultimately men are without excuse. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So everything said there in verses 18 to 20 is met with a conclusion, so that, or your Bible may say, therefore, because of what was just said, they are without excuse. 
But it does, in a, in, a, in a deep dive, which we're not fully doing here, but if you were to really look into this text, you start realizing, look at these words, verse 18, it's revealed, God's wrath is. Verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes are clearly perceived in the things that have been made. It's this argument that even apart from the word of God or a gospel track or somebody saying the exact words about there is a God who created all things, that all the peoples of the world are without excuse because in everything God has made, his glory shines forth. There's a voice speaking, Psalm 19 says. It's, it's perceived by human creation. It's known about God because he has shown it to them. So you take these words, revealed, shown, known, clearly perceived, and then we ask the question, all those things, therefore mean they are without excuse. So what if they are incapable of perceiving through creation and all that God has made anything about God? What if it's not known, perceived, or clearly perceived? What if God has made it known, and in his language he has shown it to them, is the general state of all humanity, but now we realize there are some who, who can't perceive those things. Those who never left the womb never really had the mental capacity or the opportunity to see the glory of God speak in the stars or in the seas or in all that God has made. Or the minds that are incapable of comprehending a design in, in this beautiful creation. Is there anything in this text, in those words of perception and revelation that so dogmatically say they're without excuse, that could also be said maybe there is excuse, we'll take that word, for those who have never perceived or been clearly shown those things. That so that or therefore becomes very important if the logic is because it's been shown and perceived, they're without excuse. What if it's been shown and not perceived? What if our equation breaks down there? Are they still without excuse? Or is there some mercy that intervenes there? Again, we're left without a dogmatic conclusion that, oh, well, clearly if they didn't perceive it, then we don't have that. But it does make us at least stop and think, in the language of clearly perceived, what if there is not the capacity for that perception? We'd still, on our board, be back to, okay, but we're still left with original sin. But there's something there in Romans that at least makes us think that seems so clear and dogmatic, and it is, as the general rule, but it all hinges on what has been revealed and shown is clearly perceived. Therefore, there is no excuse. John chapter 9 uh, Jesus heals a man who is born blind. It's an interesting story. At first, the man doesn't even know who Jesus is. He finds out his name, but he doesn't know where he came from or where he went. Because when he goes to the Pharisees, they said to him, John chapter 9 and verse 10, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. So kind of a fledgling knowledge. He, he only knows a name and he, he doesn't even know who Jesus is or what he's about. 
Later, he arrives at the conclusion that Jesus must be a prophet. Verse 17, they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? Like you must have some opinion of the guy. So he blurts out, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had, re- who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But now, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. Not a lot of knowledge here. This isn't a great theological crowd. Then Jesus comes back and meets this man. And in speaking to Jesus, the man kind of acknowledges his ignorance Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. The Pharisees cast the once blind man out. They're done with him. So Jesus found him and he said, do you believe in the son of man? The blind man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who who see may become blind. It's a fascinating story about a a journey of understanding. How, how is it you were blind and now you see? I don't know. Some guy spit in the dirt and put it on my eyes. Who was it? I don't know. He's just this man named Jesus. Well, come on. You must think he's somebody. I, I guess maybe he's a prophet. And then he meets Jesus, and Jesus is like, do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, who is he? And in kind of that veiled language, Jesus reveals, I am. And he believes and he worships but clearly a progression that the text labors to tell us about. Then we have this little bit of a conclusion that takes it from the physical realm and and gives us a, a spiritual example. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who think they see will actually be blind. That's a transition already because he's not talking about this man anymore. He's talking about a spiritual blindness or seeing. Right away, we see the next verse, verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Because they realized he wasn't talking about physical blindness when he said, I came so that the ones who don't see would be able to and the ones who think they see would actually be blind. So we would probably say it like this. Oh, oh, I see. So you're saying we're blind then? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. It's an interesting concept. We're thinking, wait a minute, we're talking in the spiritual realm. And if they were blind, if there was truly the potential for being oblivious to the glory of God and creation, would that mean we would be guiltless? It's it's a fascinating text that, that stirs up some big questions in our minds because, again, the pillars on our board demand that we see it doesn't matter if you're ignorant of the gospel or of Jesus or of God. You are without excuse. But is Jesus saying that here? Is he simply restating what, or pre-stating what Paul would say in Romans 1? That blindness is really just suppressing the truth? Or is he speaking of something that didn't even really apply to the Pharisees? Because... 
If he says, if you were blind, the realization is those Pharisees would never truly be so blind that there is no capacity for understanding at all. Romans 1 says the norm is there is capacity, and we suppress the truth because even what we understand we don't like. But what if we back up before suppressing the truth and realize a scenario that there would be a true blindness, an inability to comprehend anything about the conversation Jesus had with the blind man, an inability to comprehend eyes being miraculously healed by a greater power, the inability to comprehend a greater need than blindness, that being sinfulness. What if there were a true blindness to everything God has revealed? The conclusion of a great story about a man being healed of his blindness um, reminds us of a lot of truths that Isaiah the prophet spoke of, that in the coming of the Messiah, there would be judgment. Judgment being that those who were in unbelief would be confirmed, sealed in their unbelief. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Our favorite, one of our favorite Christmas texts from Isaiah 7.14, but it's in the language of judgment. It's going to come in a really weird way so that people will stumble over it and say, no way is that possible. I'd never believe that. And those who think they see would be judged and confirmed in their blindness. We know Jesus is saying that much. But why doesn't he just say that part? Why does he say if there was truly some kind of blindness that could be blind to anything of truth, there would be no guilt? It gets us thinking down this path of, are there scriptures that are consistent with our hope that babies go to heaven because of what we feel is their inability to understand any of what we call the gospel? A few other texts, and then we'll pick up next week. Some of those verses are helping us think through those who lack capacity for understanding. John 9, Romans 1 uh, being significant. There's another idea that comes through in the scriptures that condemnation is tied to rejection of the truth. Romans 1, they suppress the truth. Well, if you take that out of Romans 1, 18 to 20, the argument loses some of its strength. It's there still, but the fact that they suppress the truth really helps our minds realize just how bad Our sin nature is. Truth was there and we rejected it. We buried it. This is why the Bible says in the day of judgment, every mouth will be stopped because the answer will be very simple. You saw the truth. And it's not only, you can't say, oh, I didn't realize that. No, you hated it. John 3, the light comes into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. They hated the light. So there just is no innocence. Romans 1 isn't the first time we're seeing they're without excuse. That's that's just clear if we really think about what sin is. But the Bible also weighs in heavily regarding condemnation for the specific act of unbelief, uh, rejection. Luke chapter 10 gives us an interesting thought. Luke 10, beginning in verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, two cities, the north side of Israel. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, is the answer. You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. These cities are being judged for their wickedness, for their rejection of truth. If the mighty works had been done here, these people would have believed, but You had all these things done right there in your presence. Capernaum, for example, kind of the headquarters of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. 
They saw Jesus all the time and didn't believe him. Their judgment will be great. But the judgment that Jesus speaks of, he links specifically to the willful act of rejection. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And there is where the condemnation lies on those who do not believe in the only begotten Son of God. John chapter 12, verse 48. Jesus, verse 44, cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Again, is this dogmatically saying that somehow if somebody doesn't understand God's words, doesn't have the capacity to hear those words and receive or reject them, gets a pass? We can't say it that way because of what we know of truth. But if we're thinking, I'm hoping that infants who die in their early age go to heaven, then we would find something consistent with this idea that Judgment, there is a judge for the one who has heard truth and rejected it. Well, okay, but we kind of know that. That feels right. They, they suppressed the truth. They, they had that truth and they didn't want it. They had the light and didn't want it. Is there, through lack of capacity or whatever other explanation, is there a category of people who do not, receive those words who do not perceive that light and therefore make no moral choice to reject it. The question is asked and we have to answer it. Um, it's, It's thinking through the opposite direction of the text. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. So is there a judge for those who never choose to reject? because they never perceived those words. Isaiah chapter 7, in that text that I'd mentioned about the coming Messiah, says that that son will be born. He will eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. But before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So in that text, Israel was afraid of two troublesome kings that were threatening Israel. God tells King Ahaz, hey, ask for a sign, and I'll give you a sign that would build your faith. Well, Ahaz wants really no parts of God's way, so he, he masks his unbelief in spiritual language and says, well, we're not supposed to tempt God. I'm not going to ask for a sign. Well, that sounds good, except God had just said, no, ask for a sign. And when he says, no, I'm not going to, God says, well, behold, I will give you a sign. Like, okay, you don't want it, but you're going to get it. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. Um, So there's the sign that's given, and it's not a pretty picture. It's like this, this is a conflict between God and this unbelieving king. And then God goes on to say that, Those two kings, by the time that child that would be born grows up, those kings are going to be off the scene. But that growing up is defined this way. At first, he's young and doesn't know how to refuse the evil and choose the good, but eventually he'll grow up and he'll know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Really, it seems to be an odd way of describing a young child but it also stirs up a little bit of question about, well, 
So what if they're too young to refuse the evil and choose the good? Where does that leave them in our understanding, especially regarding our question of infants that die young? Again, hanging over us is this thought that, well, they're born with a sin nature. They're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. But why, why this emphasis on whether or not they have actually rejected or accepted Why is that moral choice on the table in defining them as young or old? The condemnation for specific rejection weighs into our argument without dogmatically proving anything, but it forces us to think about this question, do children who die in infancy go to heaven? Do the mentally handicapped go to heaven? Uh, And what we're seeing is that there are verses that will at least make you think. You may come to a conclusion one way or the other about what the verse is saying or not saying. But on this matter of a capacity for understanding, and now for the rejection or the receiving, the moral choice being made before there is a judge ready to act, um, these two thoughts begin us thinking down the path. Is there anything in God's word that could lead us to think that there are verses that echo our hope that children who die in infancy go to heaven. I think some of these verses and some more next week that we'll look at, we're going to look at the kingdom verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then I want us to look at the one text that you've probably considered before in 2 Samuel 12. And then we'll move on to our faith in God. What we're trying to establish is from what I'm arguing, at the most I want to say is that our hope that children go to heaven, children who die in infancy or the handicapped, is consistent with some of the things we see in Scripture. I don't have any verse, any one verse that I can show you that will dogmatically say, here's why I would say the answer is yes. I think from now on, my pastoral answer would be, as for God, His way is perfect. That hope that burns within us seems to be consistent with Scripture, but our real confidence is in the character of our God. We can trust Him. So keep wrestling with this. We'll talk about it more next week. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, the precious promises that give us everything we need for life and godliness. Help us to get better at standing on the sufficiency of Scripture and knowing that even when it lacks the the answer that we would long to have, it gives us an answer and usually a better answer. It gives us you, shows us your character and your promises. And so make us people who first and foremost will rest in our God and his perfect ways Uh, And as much as is possible, then, give us understanding of your word, which is not always easy to understand. So open our eyes and show us wondrous things out of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.